So Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, well, thank you, Craig, for that, that reading. And um, please do keep Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 31 to 39 open uh, as we work our way through these incredible verses uh, together. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, my name's Dan, uh, and let me add my welcome to Richards, especially if you're new with us or you're just visiting. It's great to see you. Uh, well, I wonder, can you remember that moment when saying, I don't know, became trendy? You know, that moment when it suddenly became uncool to know things and it became cool not to know the answer. I hope that for some of the Grub Group children with us this morning, you have no idea what I'm talking about, because that moment hasn't yet come. And if you happen to know that Mount Vesuvius was a volcano that destroyed Pompeii, then you're pretty cool. If you knew when it happened in 79 AD, then you're really cool. And if you happen to know that Mount Vesuvius is on a destructive plate boundary, my goodness, you're the coolest kid in class. Hopefully that's true. It was for me for a brief moment. But sadly, it won't last. Believe it or not, that in about well, a couple of weeks' time, there will be whole classes of secondary school children who will say they don't know the answer, even when they do, because they think it's cool not to know. And sadly, this I don't know mentality isn't something we grow out of. In fact, we actually tend to think that anyone who confidently says, I know, well, those people are either naive, arrogant, or even quite dangerous. Let me prove my point. Um, I've got a couple of statements that are going to come up on the screen. I want you to think about how do these statements make you feel, all right? Okay, first one. I know we'll have a week without rain. Hmm, especially in Lancaster, pretty naive. Uh, I know the Lionesses will win the FIFA Women's World Cup. Too soon? Sorry. Um, anyway, I know the interest rates will calm down. I know the way to the house from here. 
Mm -hmm. I know I'm innocent in God's sight. I know that God loves me. Well, I'm guessing if you're like me, then your response to a couple of those questions might be, (laughs) really? Especially those last two statements, they're, they're so big, how could you possibly say those with any genuine confidence? Well, this morning you join us at the end of Romans chapter 8, a chapter all about Christian confidence. Uh, one author called Ray Galea, in his book From Here to Eternity, says this about Romans 8. Romans 8 is the most extraordinary chapter in the whole Bible because it wants to drown us in a sea of certainty. See, over the summer, we've seen, and as Richard's kind of recapped, we've seen wave after wave of confidence crashing over us. And in today's passage, the Apostle Paul, the human writer of the book of Romans, brings this incredible chapter to a, conclu- uh, to a conclusion. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? Now, it's going to be a choppy end with two final waves that Paul's trying to submerge us in the confidence. And this confidence, which is naive, isn't naive, we're going to see it's actually informed. It's not arrogant, it's actually incredibly humble, but we are going to see it's potentially dangerous. Now, before we dive in, it's also important to say that this confidence is exclusive to those who are Christians, for those who put their trust in Christ Jesus. But also, this confidence is available to whoever puts their faith in Jesus. In one sense, it is incredibly inclusive. And so if you're not yet trusting Jesus, then can I just say, you've made the best decision of your life in coming today. It's amazing that you're here because you're going to see a beautiful picture of who God is. And my prayer is that we'll all leave without a new confidence or a a, a renewed confidence in who God is and who he is for us. Well, you'll find a very simple outline uh, on the inside of our notice sheet um, that you've given in, uh, kind of given on the way in this morning. That might help you to listen, and that might help you to kind of follow along or even make notes if that's useful to you. But uh, But first, Paul gives us the headline for his conclusion, and it is this, God is for us. Let's read verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Now, growing up, I used to play a lot of sport at the weekends. And I was fortunate to have parents who were willing to taxi me to places, various places to play. Now, imagine that one day, my dad arrived with me at the pitch. And instead of standing with uh, the parents of my teammates, he started standing with the the parents of the the opposing team's teammates. All right, well, fair enough. You know him. He's, He's quite a friendly chap. He likes to make friends, so give him the benefit of doubt. But then about after, after kick-off, it gets a bit warm, the sun comes out, he takes off his coat, and he's wearing the colours of the opposing team. Okay, fair enough, it's the weekend, he might not have done his washing, and it's maybe the only, only shirt he's got left. But then suspicions are confirmed five minutes in, when I miss a tackle, and he starts chanting at me. He starts properly laying it into me. Okay, well, now I know he's definitely not there for me. If anything, he actually wants me to lose. But that's not the, that's not, that's not the end of it. All right, on the way home, okay, if we're driving home, he actually, it's worked out that he's got a whole notebook and he's been recording everything that I didn't do and that I should have done in the whole game. 
And with his best Gary Lineker impression, he gives me the post-match analysis from hell. Oh, my goodness. Well, sadly, well, actually, thankfully, my dad is not like that. My dad is not anything like that. His Gary Lineker impression is horrific. But sadly, that is the impression that many Christians have of who God is. A God who is on the sidelines. A God who is against them. A God who's just waiting for you to mess up. A God who just can't wait to bring all your failures up at the end. And thankfully, that's not the God of the Bible. Do you see, whose side is God on? Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? See, Paul says that if you are a Christian, God is on your side. He's not against you. He's for you. He's got your back. He's on your team. As we saw three weeks ago, if you're trusting in Jesus, then God is your supportive father who is always cheering you on. But as we'll see later on in the chapter, this doesn't mean that we should expect to just coast through life, free from opposition, free from suffering. No, Christians are no strangers to suffering or hardship, as Richard has reminded us of. And it's understandable how those situations can make us doubt God's goodness, especially when we don't see any obvious or tangible good thing that comes out of our suffering. But we must be careful to avoid the misconception that God gives good things to those he loves and bad things to those he hates. No, he is so much bigger and he is so much better than that. Last week we read in Romans chapter 8 verse 28, have a look down at that. That verse with me, we read, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. See, God is so big that he uses all situations, including our suffering, for the good of making us more like Jesus. Do you see that? God is always for you. But if that's the case, how do we know that? Okay, it's easy to say it. How do we know God is for us? Well, Paul tells us to look back, to look back to the cross and be sure that you're justified. Here's the first tidal wave of certainty that, that kind of flows from knowing God is for us. Our second point, be sure that you're justified. Now, as we read verses 32 to 34, I want to see if you can work out some kind of theme to the language Paul uses. Can you work out the theme? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Or did you spot the language? Charge, against, justifies, condemns, interceding. Hopefully we can see Paul is setting up a courtroom scene. And there's something, isn't there, a bit exciting about a courtroom drama. Um, whether it suits law and order, or even legally blonde. Okay, There's something really exciting about not really knowing if the prosecution has done their job correctly. Not really knowing if their kind of um, collection of uh, witnesses and collection of evidence is enough to persuade the judge beyond reasonable doubt. 
Well, obviously, Paul did not get the memo. See, this is the second courtroom scene in the Book of Romans so far, and both of them would make horrific scripts. See, the last one was back in chapter 3. Uh, there we saw God, the judge, squish the whole world into the docks, no exceptions, and he pronounced a damning verdict. Uh, have a look at the screen, and we've got Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. Uh, here Paul said, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. See, Jews and Gentiles, that's just another way of saying Jewish people and non-Jewish people, a.k.a. every person. And everyone, you can see, is under the charge of sin. That means that everyone has turned away from God, living as if he wasn't even there. And so, by default, no one's righteous. That means no one is declared to be right with God. In fact, by default, if you're not yet trusting Jesus, your, your, sentence, your verdict is guilty, guilty, guilty. But with that, let's look back at Romans chapter 8. Uh, and this courtroom scene, the second one, has got some similarities, but also some differences with that first one. Similarity is that God's still in his rightful place as judge. But difference, only Christians this time are in the docks. And this time the verdict is, well, if you can see, not guilty. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. See, there is now no charge against the Christian. They are justified, which means simply they are declared to be in the right with God. But what's the difference then between this, this first courtroom and this second courtroom scene? Simply put, it's Jesus. See, how is God now for us? Well, we see he gave up his most precious gift. He gave up Jesus for us all, for those who trust in him. And in verse 34, Paul beautifully spells out what Jesus has done and what he's doing right now as evidence that we are in the right with God. So we'll break uh, verse 34 down to three little chunks. First, Christ Jesus who died. Now in Romans 8 verse 3, the very first week of our Romans 8 series, we read that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. As we've already sung this morning, every sin on him was laid. See, it's not that the charges against the Christian are just dropped by some kind of pushover judge, but instead the sentence has already been served. Jesus has paid the penalty of every action, every thought, every word in rebellion against God for all who trust Jesus. But, as Paul goes on to say, more than that, who was raised to life. See, thank God Jesus didn't stay dead. No, he rose to life, showing us that sin is dealt with. Christian confidence isn't naive. It's based on the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. Christians are now 100% justified, declared to be in the right with God, and so death can no longer be the end. But thirdly, what she is doing right now He's at the right hand of God and is also interceding, hear this, for us. 
See, last week we saw how the Spirit intercedes for Christians, representing them before God to pray in line with God's purposes. Well, here we see where Jesus is right now. He's at the right hand of the Father, pleading our case forever. Jesus is for us. He's our ultimate defense lawyer. Now, just imagine the heavenly courtroom for a moment. Okay, It's Sunday afternoon, and you've sinned again. This morning you were singing in Christ alone, and now you've made it about yourself again. Well, what happens in that courtroom? As you ask for forgiveness, Jesus turns to the Father and says, Father, remember my death. Remember how it paid for that sin. Look at my scars. The sentence has been served. Don't count this in against them. And beautifully, the Spirit also turns to the Father and he says, Father, remember I rose Jesus from the dead. This Christian is right before you. View them like you view Jesus. Well, what does the Father do? He smiles and he says to them both, Guys, I know. I chose him in the first place. See, this is beautiful, isn't it? The greatest gift in Jesus is that we are no longer condemned, totally forgiven. As Jesus stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. God is not on the sidelines. He's not chanting against you. He's not waiting for you to mess up. Instead, every member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together joyfully declare you not guilty. See, God is for you. We can be sure that we're justified. I make a big point of that because isn't it so interesting how our consciences have no concept of time? Maybe you're like me and you wake up in the middle of the night convicted of something that you've done like 10 years ago or failed to do 10 years ago. Even when everything was sorted and people forgave you, yet still you can't forgive yourself. We'll look down at verse 33 again. See, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. God's the rightful judge, not the voice in your head. Only God. And his verdict is always not guilty. Christian, you are justified. Let's keep preaching this to ourselves and to each other because one of the gifts God gives his children is not only the action of justifying them, but also telling them they're justified. So there's no doubt. They can be confident. And hopefully you can see that knowing that you're justified isn't proud. It's deeply humbling. Because it means that you've got to deny how you view yourself and instead listen to who God says you are. See, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is all, are always for you. He is always for you. He's proven it by giving up Jesus and that gift of giving you the gift of being declared in the right with him. And as if that wasn't enough, along with being justified, if God is for us, then we can be sure that we are loved. Here's that second tidal wave of confidence. I wonder if you're drowning yet. Third point, be sure that you're loved. Now, as we read verses 35 to 37, especially group group children, but everyone as well, 
Can you spot and count how many times God's people might suffer? Try and count them, all right? How many times might God's people suffer in these verses? All right, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, I wonder how many did you spot? I guess if you count death in that quote, then it's around about eight, maybe seven or eight. Eight ways in which Christians will specifically suffer. So it's interesting, if God is for us, that doesn't mean that we should expect a suffering-free life. No, Christians face the hardships of living in this broken world generally. If you're a Christian, then sadly you probably know that already from your own experience. But Christians will also suffer specifically from opposition, from people who hate Jesus and so hate his words and therefore hate his people. Now, Paul, the writer of Romans, isn't here writing hypothetically. No, he knew what it was to suffer for Jesus. He actually gives a very similar list of specific sufferings in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Maybe that's something you might want to look at later on this week, where he himself has suffered in this way. See, God is for us, but that doesn't mean that no one will try to be against us. And the people of Israel in the Old Testament also knew what it was to suffer for God. Paul's quote there uh, is actually a hyperlink back to Psalm 44, and we're actually going to turn back to it in our Bibles for a couple of minutes. So um, please put a finger, if you've got one available, or a piece of paper or something in Romans chapter 8, and we'll turn back to Psalm 44 just for a couple of minutes. Uh, I think the page number is on the screen. Um, I think it's page 569, so let's turn back there. Great, as we turn there, uh, this is a psalm, uh, which is actually a prayer to God in this one. And it's written by God's people who are suffering, as we'll see. Um, we're actually going to read from verse 20. Um, bottom of page 569, we're going to read from verse 20. So let's read that. Uh, if we have forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it, since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, if you've been with us uh, over the last couple of weeks in uh, the summer series in Romans 8, you can see why Paul likes these verses. Paul absolutely loves a good conditional statement, doesn't he? Uh, and they can be a bit tricky because they are a little bit iffy. So we'll have a look. What is the psalmist actually saying in verses 20 to 21? Well, I think simply put, he's saying... If the people, that's God's people, had ignored God or had started to worship another God, a bit like the people around them were doing, God would know because God knows everything. All right, simply put, that's what it is. And hopefully we can see that the people of God are suffering. In fact, they say that they are facing death all day long. They feel a little bit like sheep lined up in an abattoir, waiting to be slaughtered, waiting to be killed. It's a horrible picture. But they are confident in one sense, like we've seen so far. They are confident, and they're confident that they have done nothing wrong. They aren't suffering because of their sin against God. No, God would know if they had sinned against him. They aren't unrighteous. In fact, there's, in one sense, there's no charge against them. 
But they are still suffering. They are experiencing real suffering. In fact, they are suffering for your sake. That's for God's sake. They are suffering for being on God's side. So why has Paul included this quote here in Romans 8? Well, I guess in one sense it reminds us, doesn't it, that the suffering for God has always been part of the deal of being a Christian or being faithful to God. As it was the case for the Old Testament believers, it's also the case for us today. We should expect suffering. But I think there's also more to it. Here's a little helpful Bible study tip. Whenever there's a hyperlink to another part of the Bible, don't just read that verse, but also read kind of around that verse too. I know it's still the holidays, but Paul does expect us to do our homework. And so let's actually read the end of the psalm. Let's read the last two verses of Psalm 44 and see how they might help us, especially in this last bit of Romans 8. Okay, looking at verse 25 and 26. Verse 25. We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us, redeem us, because of your unfailing love. See, the people feel utterly defeated, as good as dead. They are in the dust and in desperate need for rescue. But down again, on what basis do they cry out to help? Interestingly, it's not on their innocence, but on God's unfailing love. So they're confident that God's love will not even fail in their persecution. Well, let's use that and we'll turn back to Romans 8 after uploading Psalm 44 in our minds. And we'll see how that gives us confidence in particular that we are loved. So let's just flip back to Romans 8. A lot of looking. Apologies. Right, let's read again verse 35 and 36 and see if we can kind of preempt the answer to Paul's question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, with Psalm 44 ringing in our ears, hopefully we should be able to answer Paul with a resounding No way! No! In fact, we actually have more confidence than the Old Testament believers back in Psalm 44. See, their prayer in one sense never got answered in the psalm, but as has and has been answered at the cross of Jesus. See, we've already been saying that he was given up for us all so that we can know God's love never fails. We know that he will rescue us from the persecution As we know, we've seen already in Romans 8, if we share in Jesus' sufferings, we can be sure that we'll also share in his glory at the end. But it's more than that. It's more than just knowing the final score. No, Christians don't just grit their teeth in suffering knowing God is for us, and so we're on the winning team at the end. In fact, read verse 37 with me. See, Paul answers, no, in All these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not after, but in. Christians are more than conquerors in all these things, in their suffering for Jesus. And wonderfully, Paul actually makes up a word here. He makes up a word for that more than conquerors phrase. A word that could be translated as kind of hyper-conquerors, or what I like to say, super-winners. Sweet, isn't it? And that means that the Christian can say... 
or actually sing the lyrics of DJ Khaled's 2010 anthem, All I Do Is Win, 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 No Matter What. It's a win, win, win. Well, how are Christians super winners when, let's be honest, looking around here, we look like super losers? We, I say it together. Um, As we saw last week, every situation, including our suffering for being a, a Christian, is used for a purpose. It's hard, but that purpose is to make us more like Jesus. See, God loves us so much that even the actions of those who hate us for being like Jesus, those who want to separate us from Jesus, will actually lead us to become more like Jesus. You see, it's, it's a win-win-win. We, we can't lose. Those around you might be singing, another one bites the dust. But the Christian's chant is always, we are the champions. I, I know it's cheesy, but I, I couldn't stop it. Um, See, this is love that can never be separated. That's a seriousness. It it can never be separated. And to convince us even more, Paul poetically and comprehensively, almost like a song, shows us that Christians can't be separated from God's love. It's beautiful. We're going to read uh, verses 38 and 39, and we're going to see how God's love can't be separated from you if you're a Christian today. Verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now for some this morning, those might be very familiar verses, which quickly roll with the tongue without giving them much thought. So let's just spend a couple of moments dwelling on each of those categories that Paul gives us to get a bigger, better, richer, more beautiful picture of God's love in Christ. First, death nor life. Now, as we've seen, Christians have confidence in the face of death. They have confidence that they will be raised like Jesus to be with Jesus forever, enjoying a sin and suffering-free relationship with him um, it would be great afterwards if you could chat to the Grub Group people actually, who've literally learned that today, that beautiful picture of the new creation. But also we've seen that in this life, Christians are slowly becoming more like Jesus as one of his siblings in the family of God. Can we see that? that not even death can separate you. Secondly, angels nor demons. Now simply put, demons are spiritual beings who serve Satan who the Bible also calls the accuser. And as we've seen, Christians are completely justified before God. There is no accusation, no charge, no case that can be brought against them. This means that Satan and his servants, they've got nothing on you. Absolutely nothing. See, they can't say that you're too guilty to be with a holy God. You know that. Christ has done it. You are justified once and for all. Not even demons can separate you. Well, thirdly, present nor future. Well, for the Christian, neither the present nor the future is tense because of what happened in the past. See, Jesus died and he rose again and is now at the right hand of God the Father, guaranteeing your glorious future with him. Yes, we can expect suffering now in the present, But trust in Jesus means that if you're justified, as we saw last week, justified means you're as good as glorified. Nothing happening now or in the future can ever separate you. Fourthly, powers. Well, as we've already beautifully sung this morning, 
No power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. There is no authority in this world or in heaven that is more powerful than your heavenly father. And he's already said he's for you. No powers can separate you. Fifthly, uh, no height, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. See, like those in Psalm 44, you might feel in the depths right now. God might feel far, far away. It might seem like your prayers don't even get past the ceiling, let alone into the courtroom of heaven. Maybe you might have been experiencing more low days than high days recently, when it's hard to believe that God's objectively good or abstractly good, let alone loves you and is for you personally. Or maybe your love for God and the awe of the gospel has become cold, drowned out by other things. Maybe you look at the people around you this morning and you see a whole church of people who look like they're confident, who know that they're loved, and you feel like an imposter, afraid that you'll be found out. Or maybe you just can't accept that God loves you as much as Jesus when you keep on failing him time and time again. Well, let me ask you, from what we've seen, will those feelings separate you from God's love? No. Nothing in all creation, nothing within you, nothing outside you, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, as we conclude, let me ask you again, are you drowning in the sea of certainty? Maybe a little bit more than you were before? See, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, you can say, I know I am justified, that I'm declared right in God's sight. If God is for you, you can say, I know that I'm loved in every situation of life. Now, granted, for some this morning, saying that is easier than for others. In fact, you might feel like a super winner this morning. Maybe you've seen growth in your battle against sin. Maybe you're, you're experiencing uh, an episode of, of health. Um, maybe you've, you got the grades you wanted, uh, or that the exams went well, or, or work seemed to go smoothly. Maybe you've enjoyed a holiday over the summer. Maybe you've even been to a camp or a conference and recommitted your life to serving King Jesus. Well, amazing. Thank God for his kindness to you. But please be careful. See, be, be aware of, of equating life going well to God being for you. Okay, God has not always promised that life will be easy. In fact, we've already seen what God has promised. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now I wonder, I don't know which one, but I know that one of those you'll probably face this year. Or at least in five years' time or maybe in ten years' time if God's kinder in that sense. But I know that for sure that you will face one of those things. And so the question is going to be then, will you still be drowning in that sea of certainty? So you can be sure that you will suffer for Jesus. But as we've been seeing, equally, we can have great confidence that God is for you in those sufferings. For others, confidence that God is for us may seem harder, if not impossible. You might not feel like you have that 
confidence that we've been saying, we've been talking about today. Maybe on your worst days, you might not even think it's true for anyone. And so whether you're confident or not, that does not change the fact that Jesus has died, has risen, and is now interceding for you. See, God sees you as justified and beloved, as one of his children, just like Jesus. God is for you. And beautifully, not just for you. See, in these last ten verses we've been looking at, Paul actually uses the word us eight times, which means that God was for the Apostle Paul, which means God was for the community of believers who met here in Rome. And that means that God is for us here as Moreland's church family. And I wonder how that might change everything. See, if God is for the person sitting next to you, how would that change your relationship with them? If God is for our church family, how should that change our expectations of what he's going to do this academic year? If God is for his worldwide church, then how might that change the way in which we view the state of the Christian faith in 2023? And if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, I wonder how that might change you too. So we've seen that Jesus has given, been given up for us all, which means that invite is open today to join the only community of people on earth for who God is always for. See, if God is for us, how has that changed the way we view Christians? Well, can I encourage you to chat through that question a little bit later on over tea and coffee? But, but for now, we're actually going to finish by reading Romans 8, verses 38 to 39, out loud, all together, to co-express our confidence. Now, before we do, I'll give you a bit of a moment just to think back uh, what we've learned today, to reflect in the quietness of your own heart of what you've heard God say to you, about you, and for you in the Lord Jesus. So I'll give you maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute by ourselves, and then we'll read Romans 8, verses 38 to 39 all together. Well, let's read Romans 8, verses 38 to 39 together. The words are on the screen, and they're also in your Bibles. Let's read that together. For I am convinced... That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.